If you have your Bible with you this morning, and I hope you bring your Bible with you so that you can follow along, make sure that what we're reading, what's being said is, is actually there. Um, if you need the Pew Bible uh, there today, we're turning to hymn number, not hymn, but page number. <laughs> Get mixed up here. 232 in your hymn Bibles. Pew Bibles. <laughs> and uh, if it's a Ryrie Study Bible, that's going to be page number 386. Because my ESV Study Bible is at home. So maybe that's what it is. It's thrown me all off. But it's Judges chapter 4. It's where we'll be. And we're going to cover Judges chapter 4 and 5 today. And last week we ended the passage with that one short verse of the third judge, which was Shamgar, and uh, almost as if in a headline fashion. This just in, Shamgar kills 600 with ox goad, and that's all we had for his record. Well, today when we look at chapter 5 and 6, we're going to cover uh, a much longer account with many more details this time the Canaanites will be at war with those in the north as opposed to the south that we've been studying about the last couple of weeks. And this will be for control of the Jezreel Valley. If you happen to visit that on your trip uh, to Israel, then you have in your head this flat, low land uh, down near the coast. And the way that it looks uh, gives you pictures of how uh, warfare might look. Uh, furthermore, and this is one detail I'll give you before we begin reading, uh, you won't see this anywhere else quite like this in what we're about to read today. And places where we find it, it's not quite uh, as elaborate, and it's the only place in Judges where we'll see it. But we're going to read the same story, but two different accounts of it. It's the same story in chapter 4 as the story in chapter 5, except what the difference between the two of them is one is in narrative... The other's in a poem. To put that more simplistically, a story and a song. Uh, think of the difference in movies you watch that's regular and then the ones that perhaps you were made to watch as a child, which is a musical. <laughs> I, I don't like a musical. Well, what we've got is one of both today, a musical and then a regular story, chapters 4 and 5. So let's begin the first few verses, at least the first three of chapter 4, and then we'll pray. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Cana, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. For he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Let's ask the Lord for help with what we study today. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to study. We thank you for a mind that you've given us where we can think. Lord, we actually ask that you help us think. That you uh, also speak to our heart as well. Both to our head and to our heart today. And may the things that we read in this old story. 
explain for us, color up for us what you've asked us to do. To ask ourselves where we fit into this story and what we can learn from it. So be our teacher. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, the last thing that we read there in verse 3 is probably what is most uh, emphatic about this account and the people of Israel and the oppression or cruel treatment for the last 20 years. It's because of the military might of this group of people controlled by this man named Jabin and these so-called 900 chariots of iron which would have been the latest in military technology. We would consider this to be a tank division. We, we talked about this first. We already read about it actually in chapters uh, 1 and 2 and how uh, they had been used against Judah and Dan and how they were unable to advance against them. In fact, Dan was pushed back into the hills and not able to uh, settle down in the plain because of this tank division, these iron chariots which were so feared by everyone else. Let's keep reading in verse uh, 4 and try to keep the pace of uh, our reading the story uh, quickly. Now Deborah, a prophetess, uh, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. So she'd been doing this for some time, but now, we keep reading, we're going to see that she is the agent by which God's word will be heard to summon a general to be Israel's next savior. And this is the first time, and really the only clear time in Judges, where you see the office of the judge separate from the office of the savior, the saving the people from the bondage of the people that are oppressing them. This is in two different places. Two different people, uh, Deborah and Barak, or Barak. It's actually pronounced Barak in Hebrew, um, though every time I ever heard it read as a kid, it was Barak, or Barak, rather than Barak. Real confusing during the last presidential term. Um, but look at what happens in verse 6. She sent and summoned Barak, or Barak, whichever way you want to pronounce it, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun? Well, that's just an hour down the road, isn't it? You didn't know we were so close to the fight here. And I will draw out Sisera. Not Deborah, but God will draw out Sisera. This is what God had said. She's asking Barak here, don't you know, has not the Lord told you these things? He will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Think about what's being said got this very wise woman that the whole country is coming to have uh, her assistance in settling disputes and affairs between them. She's judging the people. 
And she's calling on this man to command 10,000 of these people in an army to go take control of what has uh, yet to be inhabited. And that God will give this victory, including the 900 chariots of iron, into their hand. As far as she's concerned, it's a, a done deal. So Deborah, and by the way, her, her name means honeybee. That happens to be my, my mother's name as well, Deborah. We call her Debbie. Uh, and if you know her, it's quite fitting. Honeybee seems to be quite like her personality. And in this story, Deborah or Devorah, all the bees sound like V's in Hebrew. Um, and when we get a little further down and we read the name that you probably heard pronounced Jael all the time, it's actually Yael. All the J's usually have the Y sound, which uh, complicates a name like my brother's, which includes both. That'd be Jacob. It's actually Yaakov, if a Hebrew says it. And the reason why I bring all this up is because ever since I met a Yael in Israel and heard it said the right way, I've called it Yael instead of Jael. And I think it's a prettier way to say it. I don't know, there's lots of girls in, in Israel with the name Yael. There are no girls in America named Jael. <laughs> and maybe that's the reason why. I don't know. But this Deborah, who is honeybee, is charging Barak, whose name means lightning. But we don't see a lot of lightning coming from this man. He doesn't remind us of Thor at all. Uh, and she's charging him in the name of God to go in a certain victory. They're given into your hands. But he responds by imposing a condition on her, which is quite inappropriate. And when we read this, it's with a sigh. Verse 8, Barak, or Barak, said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So what do we think of that? We don't think much of it. Uh, for the rest of the movie, this guy is a chicken. Uh, and we've got to try to understand what, what, what's going into this. These are 900 chariots of, of iron. This is a woman speaking the words of the Lord to this man. And he's weighing it all in his mind. And this woman who seems to be holding up uh, as, as this very wise woman, uh, the leadership of Israel at the moment, he says, I want you with me. And what she says in verse 9 is, I will surely go with you. There's no problem there. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, we just read that this honeybee, Deborah, is a prophetess. And prophets and prophetesses prophesy. That's what she's doing here. This is a prophecy. This isn't going to go the way that you expect it to go. In fact, the victory is going to be given to the hand of a woman. That's the prophecy. And we'll have to see whether or not or how that's fulfilled as we move along. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up to his heels, or went up at his heels, and Deborah went with him. Now when you get to verse 11, 
uh, it seems as if the whole flow of the story breaks because this piece of information, which doesn't seem to make any sense, is inserted here and kind of interrupts the flow. Look at verse 11. Now Heber, the Kenite, uh, had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab. Remember, all the V's sound like B's. And that is both, both of those names have B's in them. But this is the guy who's the father-in-law of Moses. And what he'd done is pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zananim, which is near Kadesh. Now, it seems as if, who cares? I don't know this guy. I know Moses. But that he, for some reason, has decided to pull away from the rest of the Kenites and move his house all the way to this oak tree near Kadesh. Big deal. Well, if we go back to the previous verse, that's where Deborah and Barak and Zebulun and Naphtali and 10,000 men with, at his heels are all headed for Kadesh where this tent has been pitched, this man has moved. It's going to be a very important tent as we go on in the story. But that's what that means. So, verse 12, Meanwhile, back to the story, when Sisera was told that Barak and the son, the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him, from Harosheth, Hagoyim, to the river Kishon, so he's all in. He's heard what's taking place. All 900. And the entire infantry that goes along with it. If we're, we're playing chess here. Or uh, Axis and Allies. If you remember that game. Pushing all the men over into the place. Where this battle is going to happen. Where the clash will occur. And Deborah said to Barak. Up. With an exclamation point. Um. Don't know if he was sitting. Probably wasn't. But that's just, that's, that's the way this is described. Time to go. For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Well, I thought he was given into the hand of a woman. Well, sort of. We'll see. Does not the Lord go out before you? Which is a reminder of the fact the Lord has already told you this is a done deal. So, Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. He's obedient. And he does what he's asked to do. Look at verse 15. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak or Barak, by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. Except for Sisera, who is running away on foot. I like the way the ESV used that word routed. The Lord routed Sisera. And that word actually means to disturb or bring into confusion. Uh, just for fun, I, I looked in the uh, search engine, or as my father's called it before, the search Indian. Um, other synonyms for the word routed just to broaden the idea the word swept clobbered crushed walloped destroyed you could go on and on but the, the total destruction and defeat here 
Um, and while I was studying, I thought, you know, that's kind of the way I felt after four games in round two when the Hurricanes swept the Islanders. And then in round three, they got swept back by Boston. Um, but you know, there's, there's more to this story. We'd have to read over into chapter five. What we read in chapter five in the song version, the musical, is how this happened. There was a huge storm that gathered over that plain in the middle of the dry season, no less. There's no way a general with 900 chariots of iron would ever risk his entire tank division in the rainy season. You wouldn't do that. And it's so predictable that you could about bet the farm in the dry season that it's not going to rain. But what would be your greatest advantage militarily on a plane, chariots of iron in the dry season, would be your greatest destruction in the event of a downpour that would turn that field into a muddy hole, which is exactly what happened. And that's why Sisera got out of the chariot, which was stuck, and ran off on his feet. Now, there are other things going on as far as people's names and, and, and what they mean. Uh, explaining why Sisera would run away on foot. But would you know that their god, Baal, according to their religious mythology, was considered of the sort of god he's usually pictured as riding in the clouds of a storm. Maybe that's what uh, the doors were talking about. I don't know. Baal, rider on the storm. Um, but think of this. You've got this false god riding in the clouds of a storm. And they said that he usually had both hands full. One with a club that was thunder and the other was a spear which was lightning. So you've got these people with their 900 chariots of iron ready for battle. And a storm cloud gathers. Baal's showing up. And the thunder and the lightning. And then it starts raining. But it doesn't stop. And before long, it's so muddy, you're stuck, all of you. Now you can understand what this word routed actually means. To disturb, to bring into confusion. This is not what we planned for. Running all over the place. Including Sisera, who's getting out of the, the chariot, the tank, to run away on foot through the mud and find some place to hide. That's what's taking place. So we pick it up in verse 17. But Sisera fled away. On foot to the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. That's why we're told that they moved and pitched their tent near this general vicinity. And then we're given more information. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hatzor. That's, that's the king, Sisera's general for. And the house of Heber, the Kenite. They're supposed to be friends. This is an ally. Good place to hide. So Yael comes out to meet Sisera and says to him, Turn aside, my Lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. That sounds a little strange. We don't use rugs on our beds to cover up with at night. But this word means a heavy covering. Don't know if it was cold. Don't, maybe he's wet. Maybe this is to hide him in the corner because he says later, you know, don't tell anybody I'm here. But we're told also, please give me a little water to drink for I am thirsty. That makes sense. He's running for his life. 
But then, so she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. I don't know that there's that big a difference from culture to culture when you're hot and have been running for your life. Milk is a bad choice. I would want the water. And then in the song we're going to read, he asked for water, but she gave him milk as if some sort of veiled insult. Well, he goes to sleep. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. He said to her, before he went to sleep, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks, Is anyone here? You say, No. But Yael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. And by the way, in that culture, tent building or moving or uh, renovating or decorating was the work of women. They were the ones that... This was a common household thing. Um... Some people have mixers and uh, things like she's got a hammer and tent pegs. But listen, she goes softly. She went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. I don't know that that last sentence is necessary. <laughs> but it's here, it's here just as the final final word a tent peg through both temples with enough to go into the ground he, he's he's gone kind of like dropping your keys into a river of molten lava that they're gone don't don't worry about them anymore and behold as Barak was pursuing Sisera so he's behind him Yael went out to meet him so she's answered the door twice this afternoon Come, and I will show you the man who you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So Barak gets there too late. The man he's pursuing is already dead, and Deborah's prophecy is fulfilled. As the identity of the woman into whose hand Sisera would be delivered is now known, it is none other than Yael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Who would have saw or, or expected uh, that to be the conclusion? Most people reading at the beginning of the story think Deborah's talking about herself. Okay, if you want me to go with you, you just need to know that you're not going to get the credit. A woman will. She's talking about, and she's not talking about herself. She's talking about no one, someone no one would have expected. Yael. Verse 23, So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of of Canaan. The end. As far as the story. There's more information in chapter 5. In the song version. Or in the musical rather. And uh, we'll look at some of those here in a minute. I think though we have enough of the picture in our mind. To begin asking the question. Where do we fit into all this? So let's do some work of, of application. Not how does this fit me. But where do I fit in? Where where is the scripture speaking to my heart, uh, my motivation, my, my practices, and so forth? Well, let's start with Deborah because she seems to be the focus of these chapters, even though much of it is not necessarily given over to her, but rather Barak and then uh, Yael and uh, Sisera. But she seems to be the one that most of the emphasis is on as far as our recollection of this story. So we'll start with her. And here is point number one. 
God gives both women and men the same spiritual gifts. I don't know if you've ever thought of it like that, but the God who gives spiritual gifts makes those available and blesses us and things that He uses for His glory, for His kingdom, through us. There's no difference between men or women. Deborah is described as a prophetess. And some might say, well, what in the world is a prophetess? Well, there were more than one. In fact, there are many in the Bible, good ones and bad ones. Uh, Miriam, that was the sister of, of, of Moses and Aaron. Uh, she was a prophetess. There was also Huldah, who was a prophetess during the time of, uh, of Josiah. Helped him with many of the reforms that Israel needed. Uh, there was the wife of Isaiah. We don't know her name, just that she was a prophetess. Then there was Anna in Luke's gospel that when she saw the baby, Jesus, uh, had been waiting for this. was 84 years old. But those are at least the good prophetesses. There were uh, other ones as well. Most well-known would be Jezebel. And uh, her end was as gruesome as some of these that we read about in the, the Judges. But the Bible, it's truth. Its teaching, its contents is just as much for women as it is for men. Women have access to the same spiritual gifting as men. There's this uh, wrong thinking that it's men's work to understand and know theological truth. And it's women's work uh, to teach the basics to children and keep their homes. Uh, That's certainly what we see in the scriptures. Especially in the Old Testament. But to be clear, in both the Old and New Testaments, God has given specific roles and positions that He only wants men or only wants women to hold. He has specific say about what men and women do, specific to a very short list of of roles or positions. Uh, For example, in the Old Testament, only a man could hold the position of a priest. And in the New Testament, there's only one. There's only one in each testament that are specifically reserved only for men. Um, and in this story, we see evidence of specific roles that God gives men and women. Um, as far as Deborah, she won't lead the army. She could have, but she didn't. She insists that Barak do that. He's the one that God said, do that. You take the 10,000 men and you go. Not unlike Samuel, who enlisted a lot of men for military battle, but he never went into them himself. He was the conduit through which the the word of the Lord went, but that was for someone else to be obedient to. Um, As far as the way this woman is introduced in this story, even though she's the most important leader in Israel at the time, she's introduced as the wife of this man named Lapidoth. So she's identified in a home led by her husband because that's how God assigns the roles. Um, In the New Testament, it's clear that women are not to hold the position of pastor or elder. Paul makes that very simplistically clear. But none of that prohibits them from leading in any other areas. It's just that one pastor or elder. And in the Old Testament, it's just that one, which is the the priest. Some would say 
that these things do speak into differences in roles. It's part of what Paul meant by, uh, say, learning in submissiveness, that they act differently in the church. Um, that women shouldn't teach, especially in mixed audiences. They shouldn't speak prophetically, even if the ones who say they can't speak prophetically think that speaking prophetically is something that ceased back in the era of the apostles. But there's a big problem with any of that. We see women doing all these things all over the New Testament. We see them teaching. We see them prophesying. We see them teaching mixed audiences. In fact, Apollos, who Paul basically says was the most eloquent preacher during that time, specifically we see him being taught by Priscilla and Aquila. And interestingly enough, in the New Testament, Priscilla, that's the wife, leads in her husband's name. They're, they're, they're backwards. It's always the wife first. Most of the time in the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila. Well, Apollos had some holes in his theology, and they sat down and told him a more excellent way, as it were. So you've got a female tutor of probably the, the Spurgeon of the New Testament, the best speaker they had. So, taking all this in, um, as far as the New Testament goes, we see a lot of these things. And not just prophetesses, but deaconesses as well. Some like to talk a lot about what that means, because there's really no explanation when that's listed as to what the job description looks like. It seems to be very similar to the deacon, but in a female uh, gendered Greek word but here's the point and here's as what I would say about this if it weren't for a whole host of, of women in my life especially the younger I was who taught me the basics of the Bible in very complicated format known as flannel graph Sunday school or my mother in our home just in what we would read and say and even sing around the table. I wouldn't be here. Uh, by the time I, I could sit still in church and listen to Dad's sermons, I already had the basics in order to start putting those pieces together. It's a cooperative effort. We're all in on this. And uh, truth be told, some of the best insight into my development uh, over the years in the role God has chosen for me to play as far as my calling as a minister um, and probably instrumental in keeping me from maybe some of the greater mistakes I would have made along the way that woman uh, is actually not in here this morning she's down the hall teaching that'd be my wife my wife and my mother. When we get to heaven, we'll find out how much of me I got from them. Uh, but God gives them unique, specialized, uh, importance not the word for it, essential gifts for the body of Christ. And some of them are so far behind the scenes. Things like uh, prayer without ceasing that hold a ministry up and a staff and uh, efforts on the mission field that we don't even know how to quantify. We'll, we'll, we'll find that out when we, when we see our Lord. The problems with ideas like this and the things that get complicated surrounding them 
are really no different than any other areas that get complicated and we make mistakes in. We either want to make the Bible say more than it says or we want to make the Bible say less than it says. And if we'll just stick with what the Bible says, we'll be fine. You'd think, well, that's not rocket science. But that's usually what we do. And we either get on one side of this issue or the other. We'll want to say that women can only serve in a diminutive role in the church because they don't have the same gifts to lead as men do. That would be saying more than the Bible says because it just doesn't say that. Or to say that there's no distinction of roles whatsoever. We'll just let them do. No, there are roles mentioned. So we don't want to say less than the Bible says. And I think uh, I'd go with Tim Keller here about the easiest way to say this. It'd be easier just to say, whatever a man who is not a pastor or elder can do, so can a woman. It's basically how it works in a church. Can't be an elder or a pastor because God said you can't. And that's his business. But everything else, it's wide open. Follow the gifts that God has given. That's up to him. And you'll see the church grow and flourish and be used of God. So number two, this is also in there, but turn over to chapter five because we'll need that for this point. The the musical actually pulls this out a little more uh, visibly than, than it is in the first account in chapter four. But number two, leaders are praised and spectators are cursed. Look at verse 1. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless the Lord. That's how she opens her song. Finally, we've got leaders who are leading. Finally, we've got some people who are offering themselves willingly to the work of God. Praise the Lord is how she starts out her song. There might have been times in the uh, ups and downs of a church where there's a generation that that says, finally, we've got some people in here, some young people in here finally doing something. And maybe on another day in another place, finally, we've got some of these older people doing something. It's easy to point fingers, but the truth is, is, is true, Either way, she's talking about leadership and it's praiseworthy. And then if we skip down to the middle part of verse 15, because what's been happening between these two is a listing of all the tribes of Israel that joined in battle. It's kind of like a roll call. But she doesn't just stop with congratulating and praising those who were involved willingly and led in this, this fight. She starts to list in the middle of verse 15 those who did not show up to the fight. Among the clans of, of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Verse 16, why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? That sounds like something somebody's dad would say yelling at him. Among the clans of Reuben, there was great searching of heart. She's saying this again. They don't know what to do. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan. And Dan, you remember Dan, why did he stay at the ships? Then there's Asher, sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. That's the docks. So what she's saying here, where were you? What in the world were you doing? These, these are the spectators, by the way. 
It has been said that the greatest temptation, perhaps, for some Christian men is not that they do something evil, but that they just do nothing. You might have a case for this. It's the first sin in the entire Bible. It depends on the way you interpret some difficult wording in Hebrew. But it seems to say that Adam was there with Eve when she took of the fruit she wasn't supposed to take. And then she gave it to him. So she sinned first. Sin of commission. She did something she wasn't supposed to do. But if Adam's there with her, he might actually be in the books first having not done something that he should have done. And that's usually the men's problem. Talking with someone last week, one of their gripes about the church. Do you believe that people tell me things they don't like about the church? Problem is, is how easy it is for men to let women do whatever they'll do. Whatever they'll do is something I don't have to do. Uh, and usually if you look at the, the attendance records of churches all over this great land, uh, it goes somewhere between 60-40 and 55-45. The majority is usually women. And teaching the Sunday school, majority is usually women. Hospitality, majority is usually women. Bible studies, usually women. I keep going, you know this. Nobody's shaking their head, you're wrong about that. Uh, but why is there that tendency? Not, it's not that we've got a lot of bad guys around here or any other church. We've just got guys that are hanging around the, the docks or where the animals are. Imagine that. Animals and fish. That's where the men are. You say, I don't know what this book has to do with me. <laughs> I don't think it's much different. Where are they? What are they doing? Where, where's their heart? They're searching. They don't know where they should be. My father told me the worst thing you'll have to figure out. The most stress in your life is where you need to be. Because you can be so many different places. You'll be called many different places. More than one pe- person will need you at a time. You've got to figure out where you need to be. And in your home, and in your job, and in your church, men, you've got to know where you need to be. And this kind of is the difference between a mature adult man. We've got a lot of dudes, we've got a lot of guys, we need some men who know where they need to be, and what they need to do, and to get in on what God is doing, rather than just being content to let women do it. And the bad thing is, they'll probably do it a lot better than you anyway. In some regards, especially if there's this business of where the heart is. I have never found a man more unstoppable than a guy when he gets something in his head. He fixates on it. It will get done. If it's a stupid hobby, it'll get done. If he puts his mind to it. That's just the way we're built. What we need to be doing is getting in on the fight known as the Great Commission, the discipline and training of our young boys who are going to be men later. And this takes a family. It's not just men or women, it's both. There are two ways to be wicked, by the way. One is to do wicked things, and the other is just to not do anything good at all. 
And that's what's being talked about here. It kind of smashes the idea that I'm okay as long as I'm not committing some gross sin. And if I show up to church every now and then, that'll be extra credit. I've done God a favor. I showed up. It's, it's not like that. Look at verse 23. Curse Moroz. We don't know who Moroz is. It's a city. But they're close enough they should have been in the fight. But the way it's worded, curse Moroz, this group of men, says the angel of the Lord. This is God saying you're cursed. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly. Don't just curse them, curse them good. Because they did not come to help of the Lord. They did not help the Lord against the mighty. They didn't show up. They weren't obedient. And I heard uh, one commentator said, There's nothing said morally wrong about these guys, only that they didn't show up. It's not like they were somewhere drinking beer and smoking weed while everybody else were fighting for their lives. They just weren't there. That's what brings the curse. They were cursed because they sat on the sidelines. So respect and praise is given for leadership, but cursings are given for spectatorship. Number three, last one. God works mightily through simple obedience. And this is really seen all through the story. It's, it seems you don't get to the place where the whole country comes to you to decide cases because you're so wise without some long obedience in the same direction. Wisdom built over years of experience. And then Barak, he wavered there at the beginning, but then he took his 10,000 men into the fight, even though he wasn't the one who took out Sisera. There's obedience. And then you got Yael. And whether or not you feel squeamish at assigning obedience to what you see she did with a spike and a hammer. But God used all of this. And one theme that we're going to use more than once here over the summer in this series of judges. God doesn't need your ability. Because none of these judges had any. What he needs is your availability. Which is another way of saying obedience. Where then again, part of church work, Christianity, being a good dad, is showing up. You don't have to be the superhero with, with the toolkit of everything you ever need already in place. God's only looking for the, the best and the brightest. No, he's picking pretty much bottom of the barrel in this book and getting his work done. And, and the way it happens, he's handling all the big things. I mean, 10,000 men taking on 900 chariots, that's not a small thing. Who gave them into their hand? God did. That's the big thing. If you fast forward all the way to the end of the musical, it's a very interesting way this musical is going to end. In fact, uh, it's, it's not quite fairy tale like you wouldn't read it to your kids while they're going off to sleep. Deborah is going to mock the mother of Sisera, the dead general. By describing her as looking out the window, wondering where the chariots are. Where's my son Sisera? Why aren't they back yet? And then you read in there where the princesses in the room with the mother of the dead general says, Oh, well, because they've got so much to do in the spoils. And the way it's described there, especially in the ESV, is didn't, weren't there a womb or two for each man? Which is a a very kind way of saying 
They're not back yet because they haven't finished violating at least two women apiece. So it goes back to the 20 years of cruel punishment. You've got these people who have been living under that for 20 years. And how does God settle that account and right all that wrong? By using a housewife with a hammer and a spike who had enough whatever she needed to convince the man to drink his milk and go to bed. And then she killed him. God settles all that. So for me, if I'm investing, I'm not investing in these big, huge programs and rolled out products. I'm going to invest in the, the women in my life who obeyed in little pieces all along the way. Slowly and surely, over time, teaching the next generation what they need to know. It's obedience. It's not ability. It's availability and, a, and the Word of God, and He'll equip you. All Scripture is by inspiration of God and profitable for what? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, instruction, and righteousness, that you may be perfect. Thoroughly furnished unto all good works doesn't happen in an afternoon. Long obedience in a long direction. Dads, children, parents, wives, hammers and tent pegs. But it's obedience. And if you want to know where obedience comes from, we should at least mention that. This whole book is about a disobedient people. And at the end it talks, uh, where is it, the last verse of, Chapter 5, where it says they had rest 40 years. Look at verse 31. So let all thine enemies perish, O Lord. That sounds good. But let them that love him, that's his people, be as the sun when he goeth forth in his might. And the land had rest 40 years. That sounds like a hymn we'd sing in church, doesn't it? Let the enemies perish and let all his children rise like the sun. This is the biggest group of disobedient people in all the Bible. So... They too know how to sing a hymn on Sunday and act like a fool all week long. <laughs> right? So where does sustained obedience come from? If it's not in Judges, and it's not necessarily in our lives, because we don't obey all the time, do we? Struggle with that. It comes from grace. It comes from Jesus, our righteousness, who died on a cross, not to just wipe all our sins away, but give us this obedience before His Father. We don't have, can't bring to the table. Jesus is our obedience. This, this messed up story of flawed, broken saviors who can't change anyone's heart is pointing to Calvary, where Jesus not only does it for you, but can give you the freedom to live a halfway Christ-like looking life of obedience in a row. It comes from Jesus. Philippians 2, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore God hath highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The reason why we don't have a tent peg coming toward our head 
which we have coming just as much as Sisera did because we've sinned as much as he has you only have to sin once and God had promised if you sin you die but his son went to the cross for us basically taking that tent peg in his head for us so we could live in obedience to him and have things like vacation Bible school which doesn't happen by spectatorship does it happens by obedience or work it's going to be a lot of work it starts tonight it's going to be great and if anybody wants to get in on that at the buzzer talk to us after church you got a few hours but we're excited about that because it's got God written all over it but it happens a little bit over time well that said I think that's enough and we'll look at Judges chapter 6 next time with one of the more famous judges, Gideon, the cowardly lion, in other words. But with that said, we're going to continue in song, and then we're going to close with a specific prayer for Vacation Bible School uh, here at the end. So uh, let's get out our hymnals.